Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Navigation is defined as the skill of identifying one's position to known locations or patterns. And as any marine navigator will tell you, that uh, skill is far easier accomplished near land or in restricted waters because the points of reference uh, that you navigate by are so clearly visible and fixed. Uh, the, the more challenging is that in the open sea, which sometimes is just referred to as dead reckoning, when the only thing sometimes you have to go by is your direction or your speed, but you also have to account somehow in all of your calculations and navigation for other things such as the force of the currents on your ship, the force of leeward winds on your sail, the possible movements which may occur in your wheel, atmospheric changes, and even in some cases deterioration of your own vessel along the way. Many things to keep in mind if you're ever to find your way through, if you're ever to find your way to your ultimate destination. Well, it's a fitting analogy for our study today because we're setting course through a passage where many people have veered off course without understanding the total force of the argument of this entire chapter or not reckoning for the many factors in Paul's argument here. Interpreters lock themselves on to a single point of reference, a single statement out of the whole chapter, or in some cases, a single presupposition that they bring to the text itself. Engaging everything based off that one single point of reference, they soon find themselves ignoring all the other bearings of everything Paul has to say in this chapter and crashing into the rocks of contradiction against Paul's latter arguments in the text. The issue, of course, that Paul's dealing with here is the gift of tongues. And the difficulty is that this is an argument that stretches over really the entire length of 40 verses in this chapter. But particularly in verses 1 through 25, Paul lists out several specific arguments on why he is opposed to the gift of tongues being used in worship services. It's a lot of information to take in, and Bible students are often struck by what are the apparent contradictions in the text. Uh, a, a, a play, if you will, back and forth between what sometimes appear to be positive statements about tongues, while in latter stages of the argument, what appear to be negative statements. For example, in verse 2, Paul seems to state positively, the one who speaks, to, uh, speaks in tongues speaks not to men, but to God. In fact, he says, no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. Yet down in verse 14, he says, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So, so at least he's saying here that, that when no one understands you, he's talking about not just the people around you, but even yourself. And so he says in the next verse, verse 15, 
after saying that my mind is unfruitful, he says, therefore, I will pray in my spirit and I'll pray with my mind also. I'll praise with my spirit and I'll praise with my mind also. What does all that mean? I mean, how how can Paul state in one in one verse that our mind is unfruitful, that we don't even understand what we're saying? And yet in the next verse, say that he's going to do it with his mind or in verse four. Paul says the one who speaks in tongues edifies himself, even though already he's established back in chapter 12 that every spiritual gift is not given for personal edification. In fact, it's given for common good. That is the good of others. And specifically, when it comes to tongues, when it comes to the issue of edification, when it comes to the issue of yourself, Paul clarifies later in the text in verse 22 that when it comes to tongues, it's not even intended for believers. It's a sign, he says, for unbelievers. So how in the world can it be edifying to ourselves? In verse Paul 5, Paul says, I want you all to speak in tongues, even though back in chapter 12, verses 29 and 30, he's already made clear that not everyone will indeed speak in tongues. And in verse 19 of chapter 14, he'll say later himself, he wouldn't dare speak in tongues. Overlooking all these contradictions, a few people have latched themselves on to just the positive statements that Paul makes about tongues and suggest that really what this chapter is all about is actually an encouragement, an encouragement of sorts uh, to speak in tongues, maybe not in public services, but at least in private use. Paul's advocating the use of tongues for us in personal use. He just simply is opposed to it in public venues. Other people would read what Paul has to say here, overlooking the overall negative tone and suggest that what he's doing is simply restricting certain uses in public, but regulating them when they are used. But I believe when you take all of Paul's argument as a whole, and as it builds slowly through the chapter, I believe what you'll find is an overall opposition to tongues, an overall opposition to its use. If he's advocating anything, it is certainly only the restricted use. But I think even there, you're hard-pressed to consistently hold up that when you examine everything Paul has to say. His tone is negative. His stance is opposition. The entire passage is written, we would say, not at all to encourage the use of tongues in any way, but to discourage it. And all particularly in favor of prophecy and other speaking gifts. When it comes to the choice of speaking in tongues, Paul says down in verse 19, he would always choose other gifts instead. When it comes to The number of people who ought to engage in it, he says down in verse 27, it ought to be limited to two or at the most three. And then only if they have an interpreter along with them, otherwise they should keep silent. The whole tone of the message is not aimed at expanding, but at restricting tongues in a limited sense. Now, what you find throughout the course of this chapter are the specific reasons for this. Paul is really laying out for us why he is opposed to tongues and why he generally discourages people from seeking them. 
In fact, at the end of the chapter, while he uh, never forbids speaking tongues, he will turn back around and encourage people to seek after prophecy, encourage people to seek after that which edifies others. Paul understood that he was writing in an era where God was still working through these miraculous gifts. As we said last week, he understood that they were in what we might call the partial age. That is to say, God's revelation had only just now begun to be written in New Testament form. It would one day arrive in its complete form. But in this time when they are in part, that is, in this time when God was still miraculously revealing himself, he understood it wasn't his prerogative to forbid the speaking in tongues. And yet still, his general counsel is that he would always prefer gifts which speak meaningfully into the lives of others rather than the gift of tongues. Now, to get the whole backdrop of what he has to say here, you have to understand verse 1. Paul says simply, pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. This, of course, follows up on an entire chapter defining love, right? All of chapter 13, where Paul uh, laid out for us description after description of love. And in case the Corinthians had missed everything he said, in case they were not able to draw the conclusions and make the application or understand the implications, in case they missed the whole point of what he said about love so far, he spells it out very, very clearly. This is essentially the application of what it means to pursue love. The pursuit of love ought to mandate that you desire spiritual gifts but gifts which minister in the most effective way to others. That, for Paul, means the, the exaltation of things like prophecy over tongues. He singles out prophecy and tongues here, not because they are somehow more exalted than any other spiritual gifts, but because they were at the center of debate for the Corinthian church. These were the things which they were themselves exalting already in their congregation. You can love someone by serving. You can love someone by teaching. You can love someone by administrating. There's all kinds of ways that you can love people through various spiritual gifts. But Paul says if it came down to just these two, that love itself ought to dictate to you that you would desire prophecy over tongues. Let me just read this passage for you so you can frame it in your minds and hear from Paul himself what he has to say about these two gifts. He says in verse 2, the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself the one who uh, prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? 
And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may prophesy, or the power to, excuse me, should pray that he have the power to interpret. If I pray in a tongue, my mind prays, but my, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, and I will pray with my mind also. I will praise with my spirit, and I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he doesn't know what you're saying? You may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in the church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it's written... By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign for, not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all and he's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Paul is setting out here a number of disadvantages, a number of concerns a number of reasons why he opposes the use of tongues within the church. He spells them out and, and, and lists them out for us from verses 2 all the way through verse 25, explaining why he favors prophecy and opposes tongues. And he says that he favors prophecy, opposes tongues, first of all, because tongues ignores others. That's what he says in verses 2 and 3. By the description of of love that he's given to us already that is essentially others-oriented, as he said in verse 5 of chapter 13, love does not seek its own. And even back in chapter 10, when he told us that we're not to seek our own good, but the good of our neighbor... At this point, it should go without saying that if you're going to love others through a spiritual gift, particularly through a speaking gift, then you must speak to them. I mean, that should be obvious. And on that front, tongues fails in the most basic way. Because Paul says in verse 2 that when someone speaks in a tongue, he speaks not to men, 
but to God, and no one understands him. Literally, no one hears him, but he's not saying they don't hear the sound. He's saying they don't hear the meaning. They don't understand what only God could know, which is whatever is in your heart. So tongues fails to act in love in the most basic sense because it essentially ignores the needs of everyone around it. Fundamentally, it does nothing to help them. If you're using the gift of tongues, Paul says, you're making noise, but you're speaking to no one. You're certainly not speaking to men. In contrast to that, Paul says in verse 3, the one who prophesies speaks to people for upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. That is to say, it speaks meaningfully and purposefully and practically for their benefit. And he enumerates these benefits. He says, first of all, that they are edified or, or built up. Uh, that is the term he uses there. It uh, don't don't import the, the modern psychological understanding of the self-esteem cult when we say built up. He's talking about edification in the biblical sense. So that sometimes that process of edifying and growing someone may involve confrontation. It may involve the tearing down before you can be built up. As a matter of fact, Jeremiah, one of the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, in chapter 1 of Jeremiah, verse 10, God tells him his ministry is to tear down and to build up, to uproot and to plant. In other words, we understand when you're talking about edification in a biblical sense, a prophet may speak words of confrontation. He may speak words of warning in an effort to help people progress in their spiritual walk. So he says, Paul says, look, this is what prophecy does. It, it brings about edification. Secondly, it brings about encouragement. The idea is comforting someone, perhaps in a time of grief or perhaps even in a time of shame, bringing them to remembrance of God's promises, of His covenants, of His everlasting love. It'll speak words of encouragement. And thirdly, he says, it'll speak words of consolation, or we might even say calming of their fears. It takes the word para and muthos, the word for myth, and it talks about that which is set alongside of myths, And so you get the idea of coming alongside someone who may be plagued by worry, may be plagued by fear or doubt because of exaggerated threats or because of of unrealized dangers or because of just general falsehoods. And so this is what prophecy does. It comes along and sets the truth of God alongside of all these unfounded fears of all these sometimes glaring failures in our life and sometimes even for the foolishness of the pathway that we are following. It's a ministry that addresses this foolishness, these failures and these fears in God's timing and with God's word leading to edification. In contrast to all that, is the tongue speaker, who Paul says doesn't speak to anyone. He says no one understands when he speaks. And that includes, by the way, even yourself. 
Because Paul will say down in verse 13, look, if you have the gift of tongues, why don't you pray also that you could interpret? In other words, Paul assumes that if you're speaking in tongues, that you yourself don't even understand what you're saying. Otherwise, he says in verse 14, your mind is unfruitful. If you don't have the gift of interpretation, there's no fruit. There's no benefit. There's no there's there's no upbuilding even in your own mind. It is a completely unfruitful experience. You'll have no idea what you're saying. Here in verse 33, Paul's speaking about this and he he uses this term that that you're speaking mysteries in the spirit. Some people have coordinated that with Romans 8:26 when it talks about how sometimes the spirit helps us in our weaknesses when we don't know how to pray as we ought. The spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words and they think, well there that's a that's a parallel idea that somehow the spirit is giving us these groanings. So well what they fail to see is that Romans 8 isn't describing prayers offered by you. It's describing prayers offered by the Holy Spirit. Whereas here in 1 Corinthians, Paul's talking about your words. Words that you're offering up. Which are unintelligible to those around you. And unintelligible even to yourself. They're mysteries to you. All of this mysteries to the mind of the speaker. Mysteries to those who are around you. Some people come along and say, yeah, but God can hear you. I mean, he says that you're speaking to God. In fact, that phrase in verse 2 has been picked up by a number of commentators who have taken what is essentially Paul's negative statement and turned it around somehow into a positive affirmation of tongues as some sort of language of prayer or praise to God. Ben Witherington, for example, says that this is what Paul has in mind here, a, a sort of prayer language. Or Gordon Fee, another, uh, another Pentecostal commentator, says that Paul understands the phenomenon of tongues to be basically prayer and praise. All of them paying little attention to the overall thrust, which is the fact that Failing to use your gift for the benefit of others is a distortion. That's the point. Instead, they latch on to Paul's negative statement and try to mine out of it some positive benefit. And their paradigm is essentially this. Same paradigm that you find in Charismatics, in Pentecostals, that Paul is advocating here the gift of tongues largely as a private prayer language. And even down in verse 4, when he speaks about tongues edifying the speaker, trying to construe this as if this is all a positive thing. They begin with the premise, first of all, that it's not necessary in any of this activity, any of this private prayer language, it's not necessary for the person speaking in tongues to even understand what they're saying. Uh, that They would say this explicitly, that this, this gift or this exercise is non-intellectual, it is non-rational, it is non-cognitive. 
For example, Gordon Fee says, quote, contrary to the opinion of many, spiritual edification can take place in ways other than through the cortex of the brain, end quote. Another Pentecostal commentator says, quote, man needs a non-intellectual means of meditation and release. Certain people find this release through art, others through speaking in tongues, end quote. I mean, the very fact that they're already comparing the experience of speaking in tongues to the very natural and in some cases secular uh, satisfaction that people have in some outlet of art should already be a warning that whatever they're describing is not necessarily a work of the Spirit. Maybe more alarmingly, is all of this sounds strikingly like the New Age movement. Newton Condovetti, a well-known New Age spiritual master, speaks about meditation. He says meditation is a non-intellectual, non-mental phenomenon. We awaken to an altered state of consciousness wherein we can perceive alternate frequency, a reality system which is simultaneously coexisting with the present frequency of the universe. So, so he's talking about this experience of meditation where, where somehow you're experiencing something that bypasses the, the mental complex, the mental functioning uh, of your brain and, and gives you some connection with another whole plane of existence. A way of communicating, a way of knowing, a way of experiencing that is non-intellectual. Maybe worse than all of this is that whatever these Pentecostals and Charismatics are describing, this kind of mindless prayer is exactly what Jesus warned against. Remember Matthew chapter 6? When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. He has in mind here this, this very common practice in his day of Gentile pagan idolatry. Well known even today, there are a number of scholars who are publishing more and more articles and more and more books about the Dionysian and Sibylline cults which would work themselves into some sort of ecstatic frenzy with, with uh, sometimes drunken orgies where they would scream out and yell out with rambling and ecstatic speech. This is exactly what Christ had in mind when he says, don't do what the Gentiles do. Don't follow these patterns of mindless and useless prayer. In fact, he says they're useless, not only to you, but they're useless to God. He says in the next verse, Jesus says, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. In other words, God doesn't even need the words of your prayers. Your words in your prayers themselves benefit God nothing. You understand? That's why multiplying them is no good. The reason for that is that prayer is essentially an exercise of faith. 
Prayer is an exercise of faith, meaning that it is built upon a fundamental premise it cognitively perceived, which must be expressed to God in some sort of trust. Or it's, a, it's an expression about God's character lifted up to Him in praise. So the whole idea that you're going to engage in prayer in a way which bypasses your mental capacities violates the whole idea of prayer and leads you down a pathway of mindless and useless babble which our Lord warned against. In fact, Paul even says it later on, down in verse 13. Look, if you are speaking in tongues, pray that you would have the power to interpret. Otherwise, your mind is unfruitful. It's unedified. You are not benefited, is the point. He flatly rejects any prayer or any praise in verses 14 and 15, which does not Engage your mind. That's because he understood what Christ himself taught. That the great pursuit of our life, the great commandment which we are to follow, is that we are to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and all of our strength. He would have rejected, along with Christ, would have rejected the the dichotomization of that concept to suggest that somehow God would be pleased with all of your heart or all of your soul or all of your mind or all of your strength. That somehow offering up part of yourself at any given time would in any way be pleasing to God. No, He, when He wants you, He wants all of you, including your mind. That which encourages you to love the Lord without your mind. Or that which suggests that you can be edified or benefited apart from the truth of God. Leads you down a dangerous path. And one that violates even what Paul has in mind in this chapter. What he himself rejects. Down in verses 13 through 15. So when Paul says, look, when you're speaking tongues, you're speaking to God. What he just simply means, he's not talking about directionally. He's saying, look, the only person in the world who could ever have any notion of what's in your, what's in your heart and mind would be God. It's similar to what he says uh, down in verse um, uh uh, nine, when he says the one speaking in tongues, speaking into the air. It's a, it's a term for the uselessness of such an exercise. Listen, we don't need to take one statement from the Apostle Paul, even one phrase within a statement, in isolation from everything else he says in the rest of chapter about the overall unfruitfulness of this gift uninterpreted. We don't need to take his statement in contradiction to what the Lord himself taught about rambling and mindless prayer. And more to the point, we're not, intend, we're not intended to take what is essentially a negative statement and somehow twist it around to a positive spin on the gift of tongues when it's not even the point of Paul's argument. Speaking To God in tongues doesn't benefit God. He doesn't need your words. 
And more importantly, it doesn't benefit others around you. The only thing, the one thing it could possibly do is just draw attention to yourself. Which is the second reason why Paul rejects tongues in favor of prophecy. Because tongues, if uninterpreted, he says, is selfish. It's selfish. That's what he's saying in verse 4. I don't know that there's a particular Greek word that we ever just translate selfish. That's a rather modern conception and modern term. But what he's saying in this verse is essentially that. He's saying that the one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself or builds up himself. That's the essential meaning of the word. That's why you see in the ESV it's translated that way. Build up. The word itself is neutral. And what we're supposed to do is to understand it either positively or negatively, depending on what it is aimed at. So, for example, when Paul uses the word back in chapter 8, he's speaking about someone being strengthened or built up to sin. And we're supposed to understand that that is a negative kind of building up. Or he says over in Galatians chapter 2 that he would never want to build up a works-based salvation. He would never build up what he once destroyed. We're supposed to understand that that kind of building up or edification would be negative. Same thing here. We're supposed to understand by the context and the force of his argument that what he's saying here about a person edifying himself is an overall negative thing, not something to be pursued. I mean, you should understand that if by nothing else, by the, 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 the total force of what he said in chapter 13. Whenever he has already told us that love does not seek its own. Or even more, by Paul's own example down in verse 19, when he says he himself would never do it. If you've read anything so far, if you've understand anything so far from what he has said, you understand that point that that whatever is self-seeking must be set aside. And to somehow now forget all of that, And to come and read this as some sort of positive and affirming statement is to do nothing else but to prove that you have completely ignored everything Paul has said so far. He simply assumes that you would understand this as negative. He assumes that you would remember the context of what he had said just a few verses earlier. He assumes... That you would understand the essential selfishness of such a pursuit. But of course in today's self-centered church and narcissistic culture. All of that context is subsumed under the overall. uh, uh, Or I should say the all out uh, pursuit of that which is is self-glorifying, self-gratifying, self-oriented. It feeds right into all of that culture to come along and tell people, look, here's a way where you can, in isolation from everyone else, in total independence, edify yourself. That only, 
not only ignores everything he said in chapter 13, but going all the way back to chapter 12, it's a distortion of the whole purpose of spiritual gifts. Remember back in 12, in verse 7, when Paul says, to each one is given a manifestation of the spirit, that is a spiritual gift for the common good. Gifts are given, Scripture says, for the common good. That is to say, they're given for the benefit, for the edification, not of yourself, but for others. In fact, he uses the word there in verse 7, when he talks about the common good, the word is sumferon. It literally means to bring together or to collect together something. And so the idea is that the gifts that are given are meant to bring the church together, not to, not to send it into isolation. The gifts that are given are meant not to exalt one person, not to set them apart as, as independent and sufficient to themselves. They're given not to edify yourself, uh, them, yourself. They're given in a way that allows you to collect or bring together or edify or build up the entirety of the church. Simply stated then. There's no such thing as a gift or a ministry or an ability ever given or empowered by the Holy Spirit for personal exaltation. That's simply not the purpose of gifts. They're given as a means for you to be a blessing to others. That's why it's such a self-indictment when you meet someone and they claim that they have a gift which they operate only in their closet. Only in their privacy. It should immediately strike them as a distortion of everything Paul says gifts are given for. A distortion of everything he means when he says pursue love. Pursue love. And yet the reason it's so widely accepted because we live in a culture that is... Uh, essentially existential. And so any experience that someone has, if they're sincere enough and ardent enough about it, we're not allowed or you're not allowed to question their experience, right? Well, let me tell you, Paul would question it. He would question, first of all, whether it is consistent in any way with everything he has said about love. And I think he would question whether or not any such thing could be claimed as a gift of the Spirit. That's not why gifts are given. That's not why gifts are given. There's a third reason Paul gives for why he favors prophecy and opposes tongues. In verse 5, he says, because it requires interpretation. It requires interpretation. That makes it fundamentally restrictive, cumbersome, and so often valueless. Paul says, look, in verse 5, I, I want you all to speak in tongues. He's not legitimately suggesting that they, that may ever happen. He's using this for the sake of argument. He's saying things which he knows are neither reality or in some cases even beneficial. Just like he said back in chapter 7, look, I wish all of you were single as I am. And then he turns right around and he says, look, some of you ought to get married. He's saying this for the sake of argument because he wants to set in contrast these two gifts. And so he says, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. And the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. Unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. 
Paul understood that not all Christians are going to speak in tongues. He understood not all Christians are going to prophesy. He himself had said so back in chapter 12. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets. All are not teachers. All don't work miracles. All don't possess gifts of healing or speak in tongues or interpret. He understands that this is not going to be reality, but he he was suggesting to them, look, if you could do nothing but choose one single gift, you ought to be seeking after the gift of prophecy. As a matter of fact, he uses the word prophecy in the plurals in this passage, probably indicating he's not talking about your individual gift, but he's saying as a church. Look, as a church, if you had no other gift but one gift, you ought to seek prophecies or those who could prophesy rather than those who could speak in tongues. It's because tongues demands interpretation. So even if he were to wish it, it would be a very qualified wish because he will say later, look, if you have the gift of tongues, you better pray that you can interpret. Or if you don't interpret, you've got to have an interpreter or otherwise keep silent. Paul would essentially be saying, look, I I wish you all had the gift of tongues and I wish that you had the gift of interpretation. And then only, all I would ever want would be two of you to ever speak it. It's a very qualified desire, if anything. Really, the way we should understand this is that Paul is using this language for the sake of argument. He's trying to set in contrast a, a gift which benefits others versus a gift which benefits only ourself. A pursuit, a ministry, an activity which is essentially self-oriented versus an activity which is focused on the edification or as he says down at the end of verse 12, the building up of the church. The building up of the church. None of this that Paul has to say really is in any way or should ever be seen as some sort of encouragement, some sort of some sort of prodding, some sort of affirmation. He's telling us over and over again, as much as he can, tongues is less helpful, tongues is less edifying, tongues is less loving because of those things. It's unfortunate that so many people miss Paul's point, completely ignoring the direction of his argument. Their single point of reference, it seems to be, is some self-oriented understanding of tongues, some presupposition that they import maybe into the passage, or some single statement out of Paul's overall argument, which they latch on to. And as they navigate their way through the rest of this chapter, find themselves running aground against the rocks of contradiction in what Paul has to say or stranded on the lonely shore of selfishness. Useless to God, useless to the church. Well, there's more Paul has to say. We'll have to wait for next week. Let's stand together as we are dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, it's our prayer today in light of everything that's said about tongues and prophecy. 
that you would guard us from any selfish pursuit, any gift which we pursue in the name of self, in the name of building up our own name and reputation, out of the desire to have ourself exalted and at the center of attention. We understand that it could be any, anything that we do in your name, if not done truly in your name and for your glory. It becomes useless. Sounding like a clanging cymbal. Tinkling sound. A noisy gong. Lord, guard us from any of those things. Give us a heart of love. Help us understand that which edifies others. That which builds up others. Is that which glorifies you. And it's that to which we're called. Lord, we will find our fulfillment, we'll find our joy as we seek that and we're conformed to your image. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.